Hello, Bethel family. <clears throat> you know, there's probably plenty of Sundays where I wish I could have a do-over on the sermon. Um, but uh, this past Sunday, due to my lack of editing enough ahead of time and also managing time well during the sermon, I, I felt like I should follow up with an addendum to the sermon. Um, this way I can share the material that was actually the original impetus for the message. So here goes. Um, quick review, Romans 12, 1 to 2 is the heading over the whole section. All of life is worship, and that certainly should extend to our responsibilities as citizens and in our response to the governing authorities that God's placed over us. Um, also then, Paul, verse 2 of chapter 12 says that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, not conformed to this world, but transformed so that we can discern and follow God's will, his good, acceptable, and perfect will. So <clears throat> you can see how verses 1 and 2 are such a vital heading to the whole thing, which is why we were taking those chapters together. Um, also, in chapters 12 and 13, you see the juxtaposition of God's law, um, summarized as neighbor love, and then the laws of the state under God in 13, 1 to 7. So God's laws and man's laws are not mutually exclusive categories. They're overlapping. Um, oftentimes the laws of the land are aligned with the laws of God, like do not murder, do not steal, but in any human government, they're not completely aligned, completely the same. So for instance, you can do something immoral in the United States that is not illegal, like commit adultery. Um, or you could think of um, the fact that something that is illegal could actually be lovingly moral in God's eyes, like harboring Jews in Germany in the early 1940s, or assisting the Underground Railroad in the U.S. in the 1800s. So anyway, with that um, kind of contextual review and, and reminder, let's zero in for a minute, for a few minutes here on chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, and then think a little bit about their application to our present moment. So uh, 13, 1 to 7 reads, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, why? Because there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, and this is like the reiteration of the main thesis from verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, which actually is not speaking most likely of future judgment, but look at the end of verse 4. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, mediated through that human authority, um, but also for the sake of conscience, which refers to Paul's connection between human authority and God's authority behind that human authority. So, so subjection to human, even secular governing authorities um, should be impinge on our conscience because we know that 
God is ultimately behind that human ruler. He's the one that raises up kings and takes them down and, and so forth. So he then drills in with a little bit more specific application for the same reason you also pay taxes. And you know, Nero is the Caesar at the time, and it was known that taxes were heavy. So this is you know, not an easy um, command to obey, and there would have been chafing and, and resistance. Um, so for the same reason you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So we are called as Christians to be subject to the governing authorities. And Christians really should understand submission better than anybody else in the world. We have perspective and resources that the world doesn't have. We have this sovereign God who came, you know, the Father sends his Son who willingly comes, you know, to save us. But here is God in the flesh submitting to his Father's will and paying taxes and encouraging others to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So he submitted to human governing authorities and he's encouraging others to do the same, the Lord Jesus did. So that should shape our perspective here. And obviously Paul is fleshing that out to the church in Rome. Um, so our scripture reading and other parallels, 1 Peter 2. Um, and there Peter writes very similar, very similar thing. And then he grounds it in the character and the the um, behavior of, of Jesus. So in 1 Peter 2, 21, 23, he says, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So that subjection to governing authorities is grounded in the way that Jesus related to those governing authorities. Um, so as it relates to how we've responded to um, the COVID crisis, we have and are submitting to our governing authorities. A la Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. Um, 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Peter then goes on in 2.18 to say, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, okay? So that same language, be subject to every human institution. And then 2.18, servants be subject, same verb. So modern equivalent would be employees to employers. If you are an employer uh, or an employee, do you submit to your boss only when you agree? No. Same thing with taxes. We, we don't agree with all the taxes and fiscal decisions that maybe are made at a state or federal level, but that doesn't justify us you know, cheating on our taxes and picking and choosing. So masks and protocols, um, guidelines, we're, we're not doing this out of fear. It's not mindless or spineless capitulation. It's not mindlessly allowing the government to regulate our worship. Uh, we are submitting to them as unto God, because he says we're supposed to honor the governing authorities. And so therefore we're submitting to the guidelines. We're complying with them. We don't have to like them or even agree with them, but we're complying with them. Now, 
listen, this is in full recognition that there is a whole spectrum of personal opinions represented among us. Um, I'm just going to plug this in in case my phone dies. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's great. Um, okay, there we go. So personal practice concern levels vary among us. There's differences on our elder team. There's differences among us in our church family. Um, there are certainly those in our church who think that some of the guidelines are overblown or inconsistent, you know, like, well, I can go to a restaurant and eat with someone who's not in my family or quarantine bubble in a booth, you know, six feet away or even less, talk for more than an hour. And, um, you know, why can't I sit in church and, you know, when I'm not singing, sit there, I'm not even talking to anyone and, um, you know, we're not face to face, we're actually seated, you know, back to front and, and so forth. So that can seem inconsistent. Certainly I'm sympathetic to that and I'm going to restaurants and meeting people for lunch or whatever. Um, so, and, and yet, are churches really being singled out? I mean, a movie theater, you're supposed to wear your mask the whole time unless you're eating popcorn or your snack or whatever, and then put it back up. And, you know, when we take communion, we're welcome to drop the mask and take communion. Anyway, bottom line is the governor's guidelines are clear, and we're seeking to lead a whole church, you know, clearly with a group of people who are at all different points along the spectrum. Um, and there are certainly people who, for whom the risks are higher and there's greater concern and caution, and we want to be sensitive to all of that. So we are complying. That's been our approach. Also, we need to note for what it's worth that the command to submit to governing authorities in Romans 13 is not absolute, okay? It is generally the, clay, the, the, the place. And so Romans 13 is not in contrast or contradiction to other passages that speak of civil disobedience, where it's justifiable or even encouraged by God. So Romans 13 doesn't mean that there's never a time to push back or civilly disobey. Um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said in his letter from a Birmingham jail, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. So, if the government prohibits something that God commands, or commands something that God prohibits, then we have the obligation to obey God rather than man. So you think of those Hebrew midwives, when they were told to kill the babies, the baby boys, nope, not going to do it, and they were commended for that. Or Acts 5, when Peter, you know, and apostles, they're um, uh, told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, and they say, we must obey God rather than men. Or Daniel and his friends, when Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to bow down to, to the idol, um, and they refused. So that's commended. In another case, maybe a little bit closer to home, if the government ever mandates something that violates our Christian beliefs or conscience, we do have recourse to sue or to oppose such 
legislation. So for instance, my alma mater, Wheaton College, actually sued the U.S. government a few years ago over the HHS mandate, and they won. If you remember, the Little Sisters of the Poor ended up in the Supreme Court over the same thing because the fines would have shut them down. So that is completely reasonable recourse, you know, um, if the government mandates something that violates our, our Christian beliefs and conscience. Um, also, if the government singles out churches um, or unfairly targets them with excessive restrictions, then we have a right to resist and push back. Um, this actually happened in Delaware back in early June when a rever Reverend Christopher Allen Bullock filed a lawsuit to challenge the constitutionality of Governor Carney's restrictions at the time, stating that they were unduly or unfairly restricted to churches relative to other you know, essential businesses. So as a result, Governor Carney, Carney backed off and the present guidance for houses of worship was adopted. Um, a more extreme version where the governor didn't back off is in California, where Governor Newsom is banning churches from meeting in person and Grace Community Church actually refused to comply with the county decree banning them from meeting for in-person services. And um, even though the state continues to try to do this um, uh, restraining order, the judge has upheld Grace Community several times um, thus far. So anyway, with all that said, the question is, does our present situation in Delaware rise to the level of overreach where we should civilly disobey. And this is where I mentioned that, you know, we've wrestled as an elder team and we're not on the same page totally. The opinions of the opinion of some of the elders is no, it, it hasn't risen to that level. And the opinion of some others of the elders is yes, it has. So those who say yes, note those inconsistencies like the restaurant provision, which seems kind of, you know, um, kind of weird to is it, is it really a safety issue? If you allow that in a restaurant, then why would that not be allowable in, in, a, in a church setting? Um, there's also concern with govern, governmental overreach on behalf of, of those brothers. And there's also the thought that these guidelines are intended to prevent harm, right? But they're also doing harm, which I think is a something that we all ought to be concerned about. Because even though they may be intended to... Um, promote safety and protect from harm, they also do harm. So depression and suicidal risks among those who are not in a high risk category is greatly increased by some of these um, guidelines. And so these regulations could be cutting people off from life-giving community. And so there's not simply one set of calculations here as far as the good of the people involved. So anyway, that's just some of, of the thoughts as far as what we've been wrestling through. But to be clear, at this point, we have decided to stay on our present course, follow the guidelines for houses of worship, and we've decided to continue the conversation and continue wrestling with the issues and, and the application of God's Word to our present situation. So please pray for us, and um, we will continue to seek God's wisdom and guidance for us. So submission on the one hand civil disobedience on the other in in certain cases for sure which one and when we're going to need wisdom which takes us back to 12 1 and 2 living sacrifice not conformed to this world transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can discern what god's will is his good acceptable and perfect will 
And now I mentioned an article by Kevin DeYoung, and I'm going to link um, in the email here to the whole article so you can read it all. It's really helpful. He actually takes on three hot button central issues right now in our cultural conversation, um, the presidential election, police shootings, and COVID-19. Um, I'm just going to read an excerpt from the COVID-19 section and then wrap this up here. But um, I encourage you to read the whole thing. It's really helpful because the title of it is, what are we arguing about? <laughs> like that's sometimes a huge part of um, actually getting somewhere in these discussions and arguments is let's make sure we know what we're actually arguing about and we're not kind of moving past each other. So he says this, it's no secret that Christians don't agree on when and whether to open church, on when or whether to wear masks, and on when or whether to disobey the government. Again, the arguments are often pitched as fundamentally about the Bible, theology, and personal devotion to Christ. And they may be. But more often in my experience, the hottest part of the argument is about other issues not spelled out clearly in Scripture. One, for instance, is the virus a very serious health concern or has the threat been greatly exaggerated? Two, is the government exercising its authority in consistent ways, or does it seem to be singling out churches for worse treatment than others, other establishments? Three, is the government trying to achieve its public health goals in the least burdensome way, or, is it, or are its rules arbitrary and unreasonably heavy-handed? Four, is the government generally, be, generally to be trusted as looking out for the best interests of its citizens, or is the government ramping up oppressive measures that it will be slow to relinquish? These are all important questions. I'm not suggesting we don't try to answer them. But in answering them, let's be clear that we are making decisions about epidemiology, mathematical modeling, and government bureaucracies. One church may say, don't you love Christ? Why won't you meet for worship? Another church may say, don't you love your neighbor? How dare you open for worship? Which I know those might sound like, um, you know, caricatures and kind of the extremes, but it, you could put your finer point examples in there as well. And the point stands. Of course, every church ought to be absolutely committed to public worship and loving our neighbors. The reason two churches like this are criticizing the other has much more to do with their epidemiological views than their theological views. Being clear about the disagreement is a step in the right direction. So he encourages at the end, let's be less dogmatic about our approach to voting, our reading of police data, and our take on the severity of the virus than we are about fundamental articles of the Christian faith, which is that Romans 14, 15 message about really keeping the main thing the main thing and keeping the gospel central and not letting third-level issues um, become primary to us and dividing us. And then another thing he says here is, let's humbly acknowledge our position when disagreeing with others in the church. Um, and again, I think we... Our, our discourse in the church and certainly in, in the uh, society at large could use a whole lot more humility. And I think we would get um, further than, than often we do. So these are challenging days for all of us, right? And many of the challenge, challenges are kind of a recipe for irritation and frustration and disunity and judging and etc. We need to guard our hearts from these bitter roots taking hold in our hearts. And we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Satan would love to tear us apart over masks and guidelines. But let's resist him and draw near to God and draw on his deep well of grace and strength and joy and love so that we can serve him and others with buoyancy and resilience. Um, two more quick PSs, okay? So I don't normally listen to my own sermons after the fact, but in this case I did because I wanted to just see, should I do this? And 
If so, what should I add? And I want to say this. Um, nobody mentioned this to me, but I felt like, you know, you may have felt like the Trump and the Black Lives Matter comment was kind of cherry-picked. Um, here's why I use that as an example. In the context of the whole message, especially a message that was supposed to address our relationship to governing authorities, I wanted to show that worldliness can cut all kinds of different ways. And given our, like, what tribe we identify with or whatever, we can be blind to how we respond inconsistently because there are worldly values and principles guiding us in ways we don't realize. So another couple for instances to see what I mean here. For instance, in our concern over injustices and police brutality against people of color, not being conformed to this world means that we also reject the unbiblical ideologies of the Black Lives Matter organization. And we also reject violent, destructive protesting or looting. Okay? To not do those things would be to be conformed to this world. But on the other hand, if you see nothing wrong with Kyle Rittenhouse toting an AR-15 in Wisconsin and then killing two people, or you see nothing wrong with the McCloskeys pulling and waving guns at protesters in St. Louis, and if you would tend to defend rather than decry what they did, then again, you're being conformed to this world. So again, we have to just be humbly objective and ask the Lord to help us see where we are being shaped by the world rather than by the word. And um, so that said, like I, I was probably too narrow on worldliness or conformity to the world. And, and if we zoom out on the meaning of worldliness in the Bible, it's a big category. The best definition I've come across is this one by David Wells. Worldliness is that system of values and beliefs, behaviors and expectations in any given culture that have at their center the fallen human being and that relegate to their periphery any thought of God. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. So that's the first PS. The second um, PS or footnote is when I said at the beginning of, uh, of the message on Sunday that, I, that, that there's a sort of beauty to Mr. Yu's compliance with the school policies on sharing his faith, um, what I meant was that there is a sort of beauty. And as I said, it certainly made his case that much more compelling in the public eye because of his uh, humble compliance to those uh, guidelines, as restrictive as they were. But for what it's worth, I think he could have also shared his faith. Um, it's a place where he could have said what Peter said in Acts 5 in response to the school authorities. Um, we must obey God, God rather than men and certainly could have shared his faith even if it meant him getting booted from the school. And there is a beauty in that kind of boldness as well.